1: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte.
2: Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Frank Ferrer, drummer of Guns N' Roses. How y'all doing? We're standing backstage at Madison Square Garden when I was 11 years old. My pops brought me here to see Kiss. Now I'm playing the garden, baby. And you're listening to Talking Metal. Yeah!
0: Hey, this is Bumblefoot, and you're listening to the Talking Metal Podcast.
3: Hi, this is Chris Pittman with Sex Tapes and Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Talking Metal. These guys rock.
4: Rock Rock over London, Zurich, Auckland, Dublin, Dallas, Milwaukee, Los Angeles, Sydney, Indianapolis, Tokyo, Seattle, Paris, Budapest, Berlin, New York. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen. Two men who are committed to rocking you wherever you might be, John Astronomy and Mark Striegel. Welcome to the Talking Metal Podcast, broadcasting around the world from TalkingMetal.com and StriegelsMusicNews.com.
5: Episode 238 of the Talking Metal Podcast. We are back in full form. Start off, I got a shot here at Jack Daniels.
6: You hear that? I got some Colonel Blythe's beer.
5: Never had it before, but it's pretty good. Uh, Down the hatch there with a little Jack. (coughs) Washing it down here with a white ale. Uh, White beer, is that what it's called? Kira? Yep. Yeah, I think it's from Belgium. Very good. We are coming to you from Maplewood, New Jersey, St. James Pub. A real historic old Irish pub here on the main drag in Maplewood, New Jersey. And John was kind enough to come out here. I have just been hanging out, changing dirty diapers at my uh, my house for the last two weeks here. I was going to ask you about that, Mark, and uh,
6: I guess the answer is yes, you have been changing dirty diapers, which brings me to congratulate you
5: and Emily on the birth of your baby, Harrison. Thanks, man. It's our first baby and uh, quite an amazing experience. we got a whole family now. we got Ozzy the dog, Harrison the baby boy, two weeks old. So very exciting stuff, and thank you, John, and thank you for the Ozzy Osborne onesie.
6: You're welcome, and there's a kiss onesie coming your way very soon. It's in the mail.
5: Awesome. Well, thank you. I honestly appreciate that. And uh, boy, this show—we are back with a killer show today. We have the one and the only Martin Popoff, who he was on one of our shows a while back talking about Black Sabbath with me. He is back today to discuss ye old metal. All the old hard rock and metal from the late 60s and 1970s has been written up in a collection of books called Ye Old Metal. John, you have been reading the 1973 through 1975 edition of this series. Any albums you want to give a shout out to out of this particular book? Absolutely. I want to
6: talk about Deep Purple's Burn, and I also want to remind everybody to stay tuned because we also have the one and only Chris Pittman of Guns N' Roses coming up on the podcast a little bit later, so stay tuned for that. But back to the Ye Old Metal series. I love these particular years, 1973 to 1975, because there was a lot of great stuff happening at that time that was starting to shape what we know today as heavy metal, and it was really neat to read about what David Coverdell and Glenn Hughes were thinking when they joined Deep Purple to replace Ian Gillan and Roger Glover. And to hear some of these stories from their own words as well as some factual stuff from Martin was just amazing. And I'll tell you the truth, guys. I almost want to retool the way I interview people after reading this book because Martin gets so in-depth with these people. And uh, it's just so cool to
5: really zero into how and why certain things happen during the recording of an album. Yes, definitely. A lot of great stories in these books. I've been reading them, and uh, I just am really thankful Martin sent them to me. I want you guys to do yourself a favor. Go buy these books. They're a limited edition. They're not going to be available for, for very long. So pick them up. Martin will sign every copy that you buy. And you can actually email Martin to uh, find out how to buy them. If you got PayPal or I'm sure you can write him a check or, or whatever, he'll get them off to you in the mail. He takes them down to the post office himself and mails them out to you. And they are excellent, excellent reads for anybody who's interested in hard rock and heavy metal from the late 60s and 1970s. This is where it all began, guys, back in that time frame. If you don't know a lot about the music from that era, this is also a good place to educate yourself with the books. Ye Old Metal by Martin Popoff. Absolutely.
6: And I also wrote about the series on the infamous Fuse Talking Metal blog, so check that out as well. And there's a link to Martin's site, which we'll also post in today's show notes. So. As Mark said, do yourself a favor, go out and pick up this series. To me, this is something that I think should be required reading,
5: honest to God, for anybody who is serious about being into metal. Yes, and speaking of metal, our friends Wolf, who have actually been on Talking Metal, we've done interviews with those guys on the Talking Metal podcast, have covered a classic heavy metal song by Moonspell. The song is Alma Mater, and here it is right now on Talking Metal.
6: alma mater
5: by wolf cover of the moonspell track yes and that comes off of covering 20 years of extremes that's a century media release george our good friend sent that over to us thank you george sounds great and we encourage all you guys to pick up a copy of that 20 years of extremes by uh century media artists so check it out Chris Pittman will be coming up a little bit later. Guns N' Roses member, Chris Pittman. This is big, man. Chris Pittman of GNR. Yeah, absolutely. It's pretty wild.
6: You know, we've spoken about this on previous podcasts, but to go from the two guys doing Talking Metal, Guns N' Roses-based podcasts to now having various members of the band on the podcast, performing with them, working with them. And Chris was just a great guy, man. I cannot wait to
5: hang out with him when he comes through New York. Yeah, definitely. Stay tuned for that, guys. But right now, let's get into Mr. Martin Popoff checking in from Canada with Mark Striegel of Talking Metal. This was recorded a few weeks back. Check it out now on Talking Metal. Hey, guys, we are very excited because back on Talking Metal, we have Martin Popoff. Welcome back, Martin. Hey, thanks very much, Mark. We are excited because you sent over some copies of the Ye Old Metal series, which I want to talk all about and, uh, you know, you just have so many great books, many of which I have. The Collector's Guide to Heavy Metal, and then you have the Guide to the, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s of of heavy metal music, which has all sorts of great albums that you've, you've helped me discover, and I appreciate that. Not to mention your great books like Doom Let Loose, the Black Sabbath book. Uh, I have your book about Derek Riggs, the uh, Iron Maiden artist. So a, a lot of great, great stuff. And I just... To start things off today, I had a question for you, and it's how did you become such like a heavy metal historian? I mean, you've really put down a lot of this stuff in, in books, and I, which I think is very important because I think we need a historian like you to capture this stuff for future generations. How did you become a heavy metal
0: historian? Well, thanks very much. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of people who could have done it. I mean, you you could probably do this, too. I mean, we, we're, we've we both been fans from way, way back kind of thing. I, I suppose I, I started off with a self-published book, and then I got on with Tim Henderson and Brave Words and Bloody Knuckles. We started that magazine together, and then that gets you in the loop of getting all these interviews. So, you know, in combination of being a crazy fan record collector since I was about 11 or 12 years old um, and continuing to get all these interviews because we've got these press outlets, right? Um, you know, the magazine, various websites, right for Goldmine, a little bit for Record Collector, uh, Guitar World. So so just being able to have that stuff keep you know, gets us in that loop with these with these big guys. And I guess when it comes to the biographies, you know, someone asked me, we were all talking about the A C D C album uh, yesterday, and someone says, Hey, are you gonna write an A C D C book? And it's like, well no, there's three or four books out already. I've had two interviews with azdc in my whole life so my, my whole point with doing those books is is once i have a critical mass of say 30 or 40 interviews with a certain band it's like yeah you know now now i have something to to add as a historian to the world but otherwise there's lots of people doing it lots of people doing a good job um you know I, i'm actually in the middle of doing a deep purple book um right oh, now but you know cool. that that's a, that's a case where there already are good, deep, purple books out there. Um, so I, I feel a little bit in a weird spot, because I do like to do them just on, on things that haven't happened already. I, I just love knowledge. I love going after these things, putting it down in print so you can clear it out of your mind so it's all there in one place. Um, you know Everything, certainly, that I know about Black Sabbath is all there in that Black Sabbath book, and even, even I can use it as a reference guide if I need to.
5: And, you know, you mentioned Deep Purple, and I just wanted to thank you for turning me on to the Abandoned record, which, you know, I I was a big fan up until about House of Blue Light, uh, which is when I was in high school, and I kind of stopped following Deep Purple after that until recently when I picked up one of your guides and you just raved about that record. and, And wow, what a great record proving that that deep purple can really put out some good stuff even without blackmore in more contemporary times.
0: Yeah, which is one of the things that you know I say in the introduction to this this new one I'm working on. It's like, you know, my my favorite bands are bands that are bands from my past that are making the best music of their careers right now and I certainly believe that about Deep Purple, ZZ Top, Uriah Heap, Cheap Trick. Motorhead, you know, all those bands, I, I I would put, you know, any handful of their latest three or four albums up against any of the old classics. And I love when that happens. It doesn't happen often enough, but it certainly happens with Deep Purple. I just think all four of those Steve Morse albums are great.
5: Yeah, definitely. So Ye Old Metal is a collection of, of four books and you really what you're doing in these books, and i I'll, I'll let you explain this, but it seems like you're not really You know, reviewing the classic Black Sabbath record that we've heard about from so many different writers, you're turning on the the hardcore hard rock lovers to albums that maybe didn't get recorded in any history books. Is that correct?
0: Pretty much. That, that's pretty much it, although you will find some big albums in here. And, you know, the, the reason I'm, I'm doing this is I just love getting down these stories, and most of them are fairly obscure stories. But, you know, frankly, you know, I don't know if there's ever going to be a book on stars or the dictators or Rex or Angel, um, you know, a lot of these bands. But I, I could, you know, the thing I care most about Rex you know, this is the old Rex Smith band who had two heavy albums on Columbia, 76 and 77, is those albums. So if if I can finagle, you know, one or two interviews with one of these lost artists and talk all about that record, I mean, that is the main thing I want to write about. So, yes, what I've done is there's four of them so far. Um, The first one is 68 to 72, and they're essentially 240-page books of 14 to 18 different albums looked at in in great detail. A little bit of critical analysis for me, but the main thing is, you know, the these old 70s guys regaling us with stories of these records. And it, what I love about these records is that they had the same big producers all the famous bands had. They cost just as much money to make. They were all on major labels because there were no small labels back in the 70s more or less. Um They went on tour with all these guys, so they have all sorts of stories. So, um, yeah, second one was 73 to 75, and then from that point forward, man, because that's when I started getting into music big time, I've got one just called Yield Metal 1976, and the next one's 77, and I'm almost finished uh, 78. I've got about two and a half, three more uh, essays to write.
5: Oh, very cool. So there'll be more on the way. Speaking of of the 1977 edition, you mentioned Angel, which... uh, was a great band that I really liked, and I was real happy to see On Earth as it is in heaven. Can you talk a little bit about Angel, who they were, the, how Absolutely. the record was produced? You mentioned big producers. There was a big producer involved with that record. And even even the label Casablanca and, and Bill O'Coin and, and all these crazy characters that were connected with that label.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool. Angel was a band that had um, one, two, three, four, five records. Um, and And a double live album, um, they were on Casablanca. They were signed with big hype. Uh, there was a bit of a bidding war around them. They originally from wash uh, washington d c area and then I think they pretty much migrated out west um, in the seventy six book I put one of my favorite albums of all time, and that 's uh, the hell of a band album, their second album. you know I, I almost put in uh, their first album as well because that's that 's a very, very highly regarded classic on earth as it is in heaven. I remember as a kid. And I still believe this to this day. It, it was a step down. It was it was a commercializing of their sound. Before that, they were almost like Deep Purple. They were pretty proggy, pretty organ heavy. Greg Jafria, who went on to uh, House of Lords, right? Yes. And Jafria, Um was Punky in that Punky Meadows.
5: Band.
0: Yeah, and uh, and basically, uh, you know, I I believe. To this day, Hell of a Band and Angel are two of the greatest albums of all time, and, and of the 70s, I suppose. But um, it's funny. Uh, yeah, It had that album had uh, On Earth As is, is and Heaven had Eddie Kramer producing, and it's a very, very controversial, mid-rangey, loud, boomy recording that most people didn't like. And it also has some pretty poppy songs on it. It had four pretty good rockers. And then after that, what happened was... I don't know if you remember this whole thing with uh with Britain and Kerrang pretty much enamored with um what we used to call pump rock, pomp rock p o m p right do you remember that term
5: I, I don't know
0: yeah, there was touch in New England and you know on the heavy on the more famous and sticks and journey it was it was that new keyboardy poppy hard rock okay Kerrang loved it they they loved all this poppy stuff anyways um it, it's funny because the next two albums, white hot. And uh, what the heck was the last one called now? Um, White Hot and Sinful. Um, they were they were poppier and not that beloved over here in North America, but over in England they just loved those two. Um, but yeah, most people kind of lean on on Hell of a Band as as being the best one. Real heavy, great singer, great drummer, like like this sort of Leonard Hayes slash. Um, you know, Roger Taylor, sweet, Ian Pace type drummer, uh, in Barry Brandt with that band. And yeah, on Casablanca, but you know, and then you get into the whole Bill Ackoin um, stars situation, KISS, you know, all the money, all the attention is going over to uh to KISS. Um they're make you know, they're making it where these other bands should have been making it. Stars complains about that of course. Um and Angel, same kind of thing. They they're it wasn't exactly competition, but you know, Angel did get into some scraps, saying, "Hey, we're we're a lot smarter, we're a lot more intellectual than, than Kiss was." And yeah, they there, there's no reason they shouldn't have been a huge band.
5: And he also, Bill also was managing Piper, which is in, uh, you have can't wait in the 1977 Yield metal book.
0: Yeah, you know, I I do have some things in these books uh, that I slide in there that don't quite fit all that well, and Piper, I kind of make the argument that they just kind of ran in all the same circles. They were a bunch of, you know, long-haired rockers, but that album is pretty mellow. Um, maybe I shouldn't have put it in, whatever. Uh, it's just cool to get these stories. Like I say, the, the whole idea here is to, is to get these stories in here and, and put them in at length. I mean the the free for all chapter in the 76 book is something like 40 pages long it's interviews with all four guys and tom worman so i i just i just love the idea of getting these stories down that aren't anywhere else they aren't on the internet they're certainly not in any other books and uh and just have them in this place this this museum for all time, um, and you know this whole thing is self-published. They're limited to a thousand. I signed them all. They're numbered, and and that's it, kind of thing. If this is not this is not something that I ever expected to ever see in stores. So I didn't even bother trying to get a publisher for these.
5: Things. So just to recap, that there, this is never going to be in stores, and once the a thousand copy run is over, these you you don't plan to reprint them.
0: No. No, okay. and I, I did limit them. I, I won't reprint them just because I said they were limited, and they are, and they're they're numbered on the back of one thousand.
5: And each so. one is signed personally by you.
0: Yeah, yeah. The the whole idea is these are you know fully described, available from the site. I take PayPal, all that sort of thing. Every single one of these that I've ever sold, you know, I I signed to the guy and stuck it you know stuck it in a uh, in in a package and walked it down to the post office. So this is strictly a mail order venture. Although I have like two or three buddies with stores, you know, in North America that, that I've, you know, leaked a few copies out to. So there's there's like four stores probably all around North America that have any and and relapse has taken, you know, 5 or 10 for their for their mail order thing. But basically, you know, 98% of them are are sent mail order.
5: Cool. Now, going back to the first book, which covers 1968 through 1972, wanted to talk a little bit about that. When people think of early metal, they're generally thinking of bands like Black Sabbath, uh, Deep Purple, maybe even Uriah Heep. But you, you get a lot of other ones in this book, including Cactus. Tell me about Cactus one way. Yeah, cactus
0: is a funny situation. Um, they they are most associated with Mountain, although you know they'd like to be associated with Led Zeppelin because you know they, there was this thing going around at the time. They're America's answer to Led Zeppelin, right? And you know Mountain, on the other hand, you know people say about them that uh, they were the first heavy metal band or, or first American heavy metal band. Sorry, um, and I think I suck Mountain in here as well. Um, yes. But anyways, both of those bands, you know, they they aren't really pure, you know, uh, deliberate heavy metal. They do have their, their American rock and roll roots, their, their bluesy roots, great players, of course, in these bands. They were more like, like lunk headed boogie rockers, like, like, uh, like a humble pie or free when they were actually heavy and free. I might add, you know, people keep calling them a pretty heavy band. They're not very heavy at all. Like right. they, they were, they were definitely not a very heavy band, but even like bad company, for example. So, um, you know these are not the most imp- impressive bands of those days. Uh, I know I stuck in both of the first two books uh, that that um, Australian band Buffalo. And man, you want to hear some pretty good, solid, advanced heavy metal. I mean, check check those guys. Yeah, that's, I was I
5: actually I was reading the, about that. You had the Dead Forever album from 1972, and and that's again a band I've never heard. Buffalo.
0: So. Yeah, that album is not is not one of the better ones. I did want to put it in because it was the first one. Um, they they get much better in the, in the second book i think i put in volcanic rock uh, let me just see here buffalo buffalo uh yeah no only want you for your body just a rip and roaring great hard rock and heavy metal album and the reason none of us have ever heard of them is that they um their records they were the only australian band to be on vertigo records which is well known for for like uh Hearty hard rock from Britain, including Black Sabbath, who would have been their heaviest band, but none of their albums ever got released over here. And before the the you know CD reissues in the internet age, you know those were 150, 200 dollar albums. They put out like five or six albums in the 70s, and and just completely rare up until now. Now you can get them as CD reissues and probably digital files as well. But yeah, there's there's a company called Aztec Music uh, from Australia that put out beautiful fully stuffed digi packs with bonus tracks and the whole story all sorts of stuff so yeah check those dudes out
5: and in in a way you know some of this stuff by the way i know you were just saying some of it's been reissued but i i was a few albums i was searching for on itunes and stuff and they they just they just aren't there and and there was one or two of them i couldn't even find on on cd that i was looking into it does the fact that these albums were never known really to begin with and still are kind of hard to find in in a way does that even make them more special if you will or or or, i don't know kind of you know
0: but i'll tell you uh one thing i did sort of notice i mean we all we all know what's happening in the music business now where you know one tenth or one third or one fifth the amount of albums is is you know impressive compared to what what it was in the roaring 80s or whatever but back then um as i was saying before i mean most of these albums are on major labels you know i was a circus magazine subscriber and hit prater and cream and there were ads you know all over the place for stars and rex and ram jam albums and all this stuff and most of those records sold pretty well i mean um you know we're talking you know minimums of twenty or thirty thousand upwards to a hundred and fifty even two hundred thousand for a lot of these albums so they they all did pretty okay. they were on all these great mega tours I mean everybody was on that same golden circuit with with all your bluish occults and sabbaths and kisses and Ted Nugents and aerosmiths these These were the perennial backup bands to to all those guys um so, it, But you're right, there are some really funny situations. Like I still believe, um, or I believe that the Rex albums have still never come out on CD and probably aren't available any other way as well. And and that's a band that put out these two solid Aerosmith-style heavy metal albums in 76 and 77 right there on Columbia. And the Ram Jam album, which I'm writing up for 1978, um, uh, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Ram, is just the heaviest heaviest obscurity you could imagine uh from the 70s and that's uh and that was out on epic as well cool
5: now i believe it's yeah in the first book the 78 through 1972 you call mc5's kick out the jams a record which a lot of people probably know quite possibly the first heavy metal album of all time and and i just wanted to question you on that because so many people of course Point to the first Black Sabbath record, and and maybe might even consider MC Five to be a little more punk than metal.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. When I usually have this this discussion, it's uh, it's Sabbath one. Sabbath, Paranoid, and Deep Purple in Rock—that's the trinity that really, really, really starts it off. But there are always, you know, heavy records from before that one can point to, and and you know, it, it's fully arguable that that the Stooges' first album, or the Blue Cheer, Blue Cheer's first album, or the MC5, um, you know, to call these things punk is a little, little odd because it's so long before punk really ever happened. It's, it's. Seven or eight years before punk kind of thing, um, but yeah, I mean, you, you got to give these records kudos. I mean, that that MC5 album is basically, you know, roaring heaviness from start to finish. Now the problem with calling something like that the first heavy metal album is, heavy metal has, you know, it it has to rely on a bunch of things. Doominess is is one abstract, but but one big thing it has to rely on is is give me lots of cool riffs. And, you know, anything before Sabbath and Deep Purple, you didn't really get the riffs. You got, you got things that were, were psych or garage based that ac- accidentally sounded really heavy. You, there, there were no really good, crazy, crazy riffs before. Let's face it, I mean, you, if you've got to pick one album, it's got to be Deep Purple in Rock.
5: Right, definitely. What albums can we look forward to in the 1978 edition? I know you mentioned, I think, one or two of them earlier.
0: Yeah, 78. I'm going to put in. Uh, I've actually, I've actually got this sort of hanging around on my on my screen here. Um, what I'm doing there is basically, did, 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 where are we here? So I've got. Uh, there's a band no one knows of called the Hounds. Um, their first album, Unleashed. Frank Marino, Mahogany Rush, Stars, Attention Shoppers. Yesterday and today struck down. You know, Stars is an interesting situation. I mean, basically, once I get seventy-eight done, I've I've covered the entire history of Stars. Right. However, many pages that's going to be. That's going to be like, you know, fifty pages or something. But here's a band that you know I would have wanted to write on, but nobody in the right mind is going to write a a full three hundred page book on Stars. So, yeah, we've got Tees in there from Canada, great heavy band from Canada, the Ram Jam, Boys, Too Wild to Tame, which was this cool biker metal, Southern metal thing from the Midwest, Stars Coliseum Rock, The Gods, The Gods from from, uh, Ohio, uh, Good Heavy, uh, Casablanca Millennium Band, uh, biker rock again. Might put in Trooper Trooper, going to put in DMZ, DMZ, which is sort of this lost hybrid album just like MC5 between punk and metal that came out on Sire in 1978 cool. uh sticks pieces of eight i'm going to stick in there may put in Molly Hatchet's uh first album uh maybe put in a street heart definitely Pat Travers heat in the streets which is which, you know which is probably his uh heaviest album and and well well loved album and i might just throw a bit of a curve in there and argue it till i'm blue in the face i know i'm going to get some complaints but i think i'm going to put in the second dead boys album we have come for your children sure which you know is a is a riffy well-recorded album and you know when i was growing up you know when i was Uh, hearing punk for the first time i remember seeing it on on tv these guys spitting on each other in 1977 being completely scared of all this like what are these guys doing right um punk to us was basically heavy metal with short haircuts and no guitar solos i mean there was not enough metal around for us to exclude punk
5: is that the album with the sonic reducer
0: no, it's their second album. They only put out two albums. Um, I could have done that one. That's that's an even slightly heavier album and a more beloved album. But you know, as as things stand, here here's how this series works. You know, um, 1977 book is out. I get an email. Do you want to interview Cheetah Chrome? It's like, yeah, I want to interview Cheetah Chrome. Damn right. You know. Um, so the point is, is like. Okay, can I, can I ask him something about this? Can we do a year old metal? And, and basically, 77 was done, so it's like, hey, I'll stick in your 78 album. Right. And that, that's how Sweet got into the 77 book with Off the Record, which, by <laughs> the way, is just a great underrated old Sweet album. But you know, had I gotten a, a Sweet interview a couple years ago, you know, I would have probably did give us a wink instead.
5: Now, going back to the Dead Boys and Cheetah Chrome, is is Cheetah well? I I mean, I remember hearing that he'd been beat and he has a metal plate in his head. And and I even remember seeing him once perform live maybe like 10, 15 years ago, uh, jumping on stage with a band playing Sonic Reducer. And he he seemed a little out of it, actually.
0: Well... Okay, let's uh let's sort of see if we can get this straight. I may be I may be wrong about this, but he's definitely not the guy that was beat to within an inch of his life and oh, okay. and stabbed or whatever. Right. That that was another guy in the band and he almost died and that was in the that was in the late 70s and and helped break up the band in fact. Huh. Cheetah though on the other hand, you know, I'm sure I'm sure if you saw <laughs> Cheetah I, I would I would bet that maybe he did look a bit beat because I I know he's definitely had his drug problems big time and you know all those guys were were pretty crazy partiers so yeah it's it, he he is still you know being a solo artist getting up on stage with guys um he he's just kind of slowly coming out of the woodwork he's he's not he's not got any impressive massive project but uh, yeah they they were basically those guys I considered the heaviest American punk band. That there was and there weren't very many most of the heavy bands were from from the UK
5: now uh, another thing that's real cool about these books and you've mentioned this obviously but is that you really get in some in-depth interviews with the people that actually made the music way back when how do these guys like talking about these old records I know sometimes when we do interviews on talking metal they specifically only want to talk about what they're up to now and, and not really spend that much time on, on the past. And are people, is it, are they fond memories? Are they happy to talk about it? Or is it kind of like, why do you want to talk about that?
0: definitely it runs the whole range and that's why you know there's no there's no aerosmith albums in here or whatever like when i get a joe perry interview there's no way i'm gonna say joe you know number one i've I've already been told by some handler you've only got 15 minutes or whatever but uh, you know i'm not going to say joe let's let's add on 20 minutes about draw the line here um so you know it i, I get the entire range um I, and and some of these stories i've i've just pieced together in five minute pieces over lots of interviews um, right with, with the band other ones a lot of these guys are completely retired and, and I track them down and they're, they're happy to do an interview about whatever whatever I want to talk about. Um, but in, in almost every case, um, it's someone who does have a current project or whatever and I do make sure that we talk about that and I get some press out on them to help them out on that end. And, you know, I just tell them, hey, I want to write up the story of this classical old album. Do you got any time to do it? And, and some of them have time and some of them don't and some of them are good interviews about it and some of them aren't. And if they're not a good interview about it i either will not ever write up that story or i'll say okay right well here's a guy who's contributed 20 25 i gotta find one or two other guys to make this good
5: cool and in i like i like all the tie-ins too that happen like for example when i was reading about the sweet evil record by derringer derringer am i saying that right derringer yeah yep in uh, the 1977 book uh, it was just really cool to read about Vinnie, who I know from Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell, and of course Dio, and, and just hear about his early days in, in that band.
0: Yeah, and and I I was really glad I got that one in there. That's one of the better essays because basically you know I talked to the entire band, um, and the band <laughs> reunited uh, serendipitously, and I got to go see their first show in 35 years. That was so cool. Met everybody, got a bunch of stuff signed. I'm I'm looking in my office here across the room. I've got my my Derringer Derringer album fully signed sitting up on the wall, you know. Um, and Sweet Evil was definitely one of those great great albums from back then. But there you go. Again, here's a perennial. Um, backup band to all the stars I mean Rick one of his famous stories is that he backed up Rolling Stones on their first tour ever to America I believe and then he backed up Zeppelin on their last tour ever here or something you know there is Derringer before as the McCoys um, and even in
5: that in that, that write up in that book yeah. you get into how Vinny was associated with John Lennon and had done some hand claps on, on yeah. his recording <laughs> and I think even played a little bit with him right?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, they were just hanging around the studio when when those guys were were making music. So, uh, yeah, these that that's the other cool thing, like like I say, you know, there's the backup band stuff, but but you mentioned the stories. I mean, all these guys, whether they got really famous or not, knew everybody who was famous and had stories about them. So, yeah, you, you take you take a tight, concentrated thing like, say, the 77 book and the 76 book together, and it just sounds like a bunch of guys hanging out all with each other. It just sounds like just a room full of guys drinking beer, telling old stories.
5: Yeah, and, I mean, even we go back to Angel now, like Frank talking about how he basically shared the rehearsal studio, or Angel shared the rehearsal studio with, with people like Donna Summer.
0: Yeah. <laughs> great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and they and they all you know, they all had the big producers, so they all have funny stories about all these different producers. I mean, they had Deep Purple's producers, they had Eddie Kramer, you know, there's Tom Werman shows up all through these books. Uh you know, it's 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 really cool. You know, all the the studio A, studio B at the record plant, you know, Cheap Tricks next door, Aerosmith next door. They're 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 all they're all interrelated and it was just it was just a golden era for um for all those big tours there were all those big packages that that, you know we all remember from back then and like i say there were really no the whole indie label thing did not come up yet i mean really the first time we ever saw indie labels was a little bit with punk and then a lot more with uh, the new wave of british heavy metal right um and then really you know metal in america had kind of mid-sized labels it didn't it i mean there were indie bands all over the place but you know, indie really did not start up until until punk, that do it yourself attitude. And and then we've we've had indie labels and it labels of various sizes ever since. But, you know, I, I wrote a record review book on southern rock and I flipped through that thing and I looked, damn, you know. I mean, there's 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 got to be under 20 bands in here that that were independent. I mean, everybody was on a big label. It's kind of cool.
5: Would you ever consider writing a book on the new wave of British heavy metal?
0: Well, <laughs> I I have one little obscure book that's out of print that was just on the singles. Oh, okay. Um, uh, New Averbridge Heavy Metal Singles, they're all reviewed, pictures of them. Even It was even made into a bit of a price guide, um, catalog numbers, the, the whole bit. There are a couple of books out already on it. Um, this yield metal thing just gives me this kind of cool flexibility to to add in that stuff as I go rather than take it as a group. Right. So I I've already written up, you know, a bunch of essays on a lot of those albums that'll show up as we go through the 80s. Like this whole this whole project will probably tap out about 1985. Oh, okay. I'll do I'll do one a year like per year um, for you know, and that that'll come out to six or eight books, kind of thing, and that that's about all I have. I mean, I'm I'm amazed I've come up with this much already. Each one of these is about 240 pages. That's a whole another story. They have to be a certain thickness to keep the postage cost down from Canada. <laughs> okay, um, but that's why they're all exactly 240 pages. Weird, eh? Um, but you know, I. Basically, they're they're all going to be about that long, one per year. I've got a whole plan mapped out, and just as as the new interviews come in, I'll I'll hit up guys for these stories.
5: Cool. Well, I want to encourage all the Talking Metal listeners to pick these books up because they won't be around forever. There's only a thousand of each one of them, and uh, you know if you don't get them now, you might risk never be being able to get get them. I know I I've had uh, a hard time tracking down the '70s guide uh, that you have out. And that's completely out of print, right? You don't plan to republish that
0: actually, it is back in print now, oh is it okay yeah well there yeah. You go. they've they've got them now over there. I actually got to get a bunch myself, so <laughs> <laughs>
5: cool.
0: yeah, no that that whole reviews thing, like the ninety seven book was all decades but but the the way it stands now and forever, and I don't think these files will ever be added to um there's the seventies an and eighties and the nineties, and that adds up to about seven thousand reviews
5: wow, and you were there was talk that you were doing one for for this decade, right.
0: Well yeah, with they, another writer or something. Exactly, that is still totally going to happen. Um what it is is David Perry from uh, our magazine Brave Words and Bloody Knuckles. He's very prolific. He's he's a good writer. He knows a ton of different areas. He's very energetic. He's always writing. Um so basically I decided, I'm an old man. I can't keep up with this stuff. I I just don't have the enthusiasm for all these new metal bands. Um you know, he's he's a good 15 years younger than me. Um, so basically, I'm going to write probably 1,500 reviews, and he's going to write about 1,500 reviews, and it'll just be a co-authored co thing. And Collector's Guide to Heavy Metal, Volume 4, The Zero Zeros.
5: Nice. Ye Old Metal. Again, there's four books out now and more on the way. Guys, I would suggest you all go to where? Martinpopoff.com to pick these up?
1: Yeah,
0: they're all described there. It tells you exactly which bands and which albums are in each one. There's PayPal, Buy Now buttons, all that stuff. Um, like I say, I'll, I'll sign them. Um, you know, The postage looks a little better when people you know, grab one or two, two or three things all at once. I mean, I'm getting a lot of people grabbing all four at once, which is sort of what I necessarily needed to happen to make this worthwhile to do. So as people sort of find out about them, yeah, it's kind of cool that people say, yeah, I'll take all four. Give me a deal. So work out something.
5: Cool. Very good. Martin, thank you so much for joining us on the Talking Metal podcast today. We will have links up in today's show notes on TalkingMetal.com, and those will link you right over to Martin's site where you can pick up Ye Old Metal, 1968 through 1972. We have, what was the second one? I don't have that one in front of me. 73
0: to 75. S- 73 that's the one s- with that, that wicked, you know, photo. I I might but, add, um, that, you know, a lot of these have photos in them, and these are all from a buddy of mine's archive named uh, Rich Galbraith, who's in who has just an amazing, amazing collection of 70s stuff. So his email address and all that is in there. If anybody, you know, wants to wants to uh, acquire some of that stuff, uh, he he could probably set you up uh, with that. And, and, yeah, all the designs kind of look the same, and that's all done by another. Another buddy in Thunder Bay, Ontario, called Rory Rory uh, Fiorito, who's uh, who's doing a lot of CD covers these days. But he he's come up with sort of a uniform design, and uh, you know he he's he's made these all look really nice.
5: Cool. Then of course the 1976 book, the 77, and you are currently working on 78, which we look forward to getting yeah, our and hands that'll have and a a eyes on, the on cover.
0: That. Yeah, that that one will have Richie Rano and Michael Lee Smith from Stars on the cover. Oh, very good, very yeah. good. Martin, who you probably know. You're probably buddies with those guys.
5: I well, I, they're, they're Jersey guys, right? I don't know <laughs> yeah. them. I know John uh, Astronomy, who does the podcast with me. Actually, I believe knows Richie. Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Cool, yeah. cool. So Right on.
5: Martin, thanks for joining us on Talking Metal.
0: Hey, thanks uh, thanks for giving it, damn. This was, this was a lot of fun.
5: We'll have this posted probably in about two weeks or less. Wicked.
0: Sounds right. good. Thanks, man. All right, thanks, Mark.
5: See you. We'll chat soon.
6: Was On the Rocks by Angel coming to you from the Pod Safe Music Network. All you podcasters should definitely check out the Pod Safe Music Network. And Angel was a great band, part of that whole Kiss crew back in the 70s.
5: Yes, and that song came off of On Earth as It Is in Heaven, an album which Martin Popoff writes up in his book, Books Ye Old Metal. So. Do yourself a favor, check out Angel, go buy the uh, the Angel CD on Earth as it is in Heaven. Check out Martin's books, Ye Old Metal, and a uh, big thanks to Michael Butler who is responsible for getting Angel on the PodSafe Music Network. And speaking of podcast, you
6: recently checked out a brand new podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit about that, Mark.
5: Yeah, I'm not sure how new it is, but it caught my eye that there was a George Lynch interview done on the metal moment podcast you guys should check this out it's a great interview with george he's in a real fun spirit and mike varney even is involved in the interview it's it's a it's a fun listen metal moment.com and it's episode 14 i believe you can get it on itunes you should uh maybe search metal moment on itunes
6: you know it's pretty neat the metal moment phrase I bet
5: is a reference to where we got our start on VH1's Metal Moments. Yeah, I forget the guy's name who does the show, but he does a great job. He does some of it in, I believe, Japanese, some of it in English. And the interviews, of course, are in English. But um, he uh, he's a big fan of Talking Metal. So I'm glad I finally got the chance to check out the Metal Moment podcast. How about a little Chris Pittman? You want to get into this? Yeah, definitely. Chris
6: has two releases coming out this month. First,
5: the great man Sex Tapes. Coming out November 11th, hit up your stores, hit up iTunes, and get Sex Tapes. And that's the name of the band and the album, Sex Tapes. So check that out. We're going to end today's show with a little music off of the Sex Tapes CD, Medicine Man, which is a song both John and I love to death. But before we get into the interview, I think we should check out a little old Pittman, Replicants. And... Before we do that, I want to thank Ollie. Ollie, thanks, man. You uh, really helped me out with a couple questions here for the interview that we are about to do with Chris Pittman, and I appreciate that. Ollie's a big poster on the Talking Metal forums. If you're a listener to the show and you haven't been on the forums, you need to register and get a username and start posting. John and I are there all the time, along with people like Ollie who are always talking metal, talking rock, talking Guns N' Roses, talking Metallica, talking Testament. Great job with the Testament thing, by the way, man.
6: Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, Shotaholic helped me out on that one. And uh, I believe Z-Man sent in some questions too. And I wanted to apologize to Z-Man that I didn't get his questions in because the interview was a little shorter than what we normally do. And Greg had to run to a meet and greet. So we we had to cut it a little bit short.
5: But I'll save those questions for a future interview at Testament. Do yourself a favor and pick up Sex Tapes by Sex Tapes. It's uh, released November 11th. And then, I guess two weeks later, do yourself another favor and pick up two copies of Chinese Democracy. Get the CD and get the vinyl. They're both available through Best Buy. You can pre-order them right now on bestbuy.com. Chris Pittman is playing on Chinese Democracy. He is writing songs on Chinese Democracy. And we're going to talk about Chinese Democracy as well as sex tapes and as well as his, his amazing history with bands like Tool and Lusk and replicants and who else? And Zom and he also
6: has a great history in the art world, which we're gonna talk about. So get ready
5: for this interview with Chris Pittman. And our food just arrived here at the St. James Pub in Maplewood, New Jersey. Perfect timing. This is Cinnamon Girl by Replicants, followed by Mr. Chris Pittman, followed by Medicine Man by Sex Tapes, by Sex Tapes now. Right now. This is Cinnamon
4: Girl. November 11th, because you have a new CD coming out, and it's called Sex Tapes. Now, is this going to be available under, like, Sex Tapes as a band name, or is it available under Chris Pittman, or how can we find this when we go to the, the CD store to buy it?
3: Yeah, it should be under Sex Tapes, you know, and of course, if you look for Sex Tapes, they might lead you to a DVD section. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's under the band name Sex Tapes. And to be sold like that in iTunes, Amazon, you know, the, the whatever the conglomerate stores are, Best Buy and FYE and stuff. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's exciting because it is a band, you know, and we just set it up like that. And it rolled pretty fast. We recorded it fairly fast. And, um, you know, we just wanted to make a thing of it. And kind of after all was said and done, we looked at it and said, wow, you know, this is a really cool first record to do. And uh, we just put it out as that, and we're going to start playing in Los Angeles this month and uh, see where it flies.
2: Very cool. Now, Chris, you worked with Kelly Willer way back in the day, back in the uh, you know, 90s, and I was wondering, did any of the material that you guys came up with back then end up on this record?
3: It did. Yeah, it did, actually. Uh, I met Kelly through uh, Danny Carey they had a band called Carmageddon and that was before Danny got into Tool and other bands and Kelly was just this incredibly unique uh, guitarist from Hollywood and he, had, you know, he used to live with Perry Farrell and they had a band called Psycom uh, right before Jane's Addiction and uh, he just had this, this knack of writing uh, these really bizarre guitar riffs Kind of like, you know, when Jimmy Page does those really strange wrists. And uh, his was kind of similar to that, but in his own vein. And he had these wrists forever, and they've kind of transformed here and there. And we started, uh, just me and him, working on stuff in, like, probably 94 or something like that. And, uh, you know, and then we got busy doing our own stuff. And he hit me up a couple of years ago and had, you know new stuff just just the riffs and the drums and i just said i gotta i gotta you know wrap my head around this this is incredible so it, it was really the, the challenge was trying to write um you know vocal arrangements around these weird sometimes discordant guitar riffs, and uh and when the two married together it was pretty strong it was really strong
4: Cool, and then Marco Fox also plays into the mix here, and you have quite a history with him too. Yes, yeah, he's he's another.
3: You know, it's it's kind of this continuing cool of of friends that we have in Los Angeles. And you know, we've all. You know, when you hang with guys that you really like, that's all you can do. You know, you'll you jam a lot together, drink beer, and uh, you know, just have fun because you know you're like minds. And Marco played in a band called Zom with me and Danny Carey, which uh, that was a real kind of improvised, jungley type of band, you know, with those same kind of polyrhythms that kind of uh, Tool took off to do as well. And, um, and Marco's just a super solid bass player. Uh, you know, he just lays it down. He's incredible. And, and and a great dude on top of that.
2: Speaking of Marco, I really love the way the bass line in Medicine Man moves from more of a, a root pattern into a walking pattern during the chorus. And I just had to mention that. It was kind of a little aside from my questions, mm-hmm. but I just love that. And there are so many different musical bits.
4: actually not only recorded with Tool but you did some touring with him. Can you talk a little bit about your involvement with the band Tool? Um, yeah.
3: You know, me and Danny both come from Kansas City and we played in numerous bands there and he took off to Los Angeles and he finally you know, talked me into coming out of there. I, I was finishing up art school and he basically saved my life and got me out of the Midwest. And, uh, and he was just taking off in a band called Tool back then. And when I got there, you know, they had the band going and then, you know, they were amazing. Just a great band. And when you heard them in their rehearsal space, it was just super powerful. Right. It, yeah, it, it was intense. And I just, you know, there's the same I would do anyway. i say, hey, if, you know, if I can help you out in any ways, just let me know. So they put me on as, you know, basically just mixing them, you know, being a sound guy or, you know, whatever we could do. And, uh, and at that same time, me and Danny and Marco were doing Zom. And uh, they, they were setting up a tour and they, they thought, well, well, we'll do a tour. You can come out and do the sound for us.
4: Now, is this Undertale? Is this for the Undertale record? Yeah, yeah, it was was the
3: early stuff. uh, 93 or 94. I I can't remember which record. And then I went out and toured. We did America and Europe and stuff. And then, uh, you know, they were starting to take off. And it was cool because, I don't know if they still do it these days, but in Europe, you'd go play these radio stations live. And you just set up and you just go for it, you know, just... No edits, and that was fun. Kind of producing them, doing these live shows, and uh, I, we also did a John Peel show for the BBC. That was like that, and and I think that was the only time I actually really recorded them. And. That was great. That was a really fun time with those guys.
4: Cool. And I know when I, I, some of the best shows I saw in the 90s were Without Question Tool and I saw them on Undertow and and then when they came back around, I think like in 96 or something and just just incredible. They used to play a place in New York called Roseland.
3: Yeah, the Roseland. I think I did a show there with them in 94. Okay, I was at
4: that show. That was with Failure opening, I think.
3: Yeah, that, that was it. I was mixing that show and Concrete came off the ceiling and kind of smashed a few people
4: <laughs> <laughs> which brings me to Ken Andrews who you've worked with and I wanted you to talk a little bit about the project you did with uh, Ken from Failure which was called Replicants
3: yeah yeah is that, and, is that a Blade Runner reference? yeah it's part Blade Runner and part Gary Newman I think, I think he might have done some Replicants but we called it Replicants because it was cover songs and you know it was kind of a we would go over to Failure's studio they were recording I think Fantastic Planet and me and Paul would just show up and uh, jam with them at night and we would do Sid Barrett songs uh, Bowie uh, you know all the crazy stuff and having fun and Ken was testing out recording gear and so we'd do demos and eventually Matt Marshall uh, for Z Records he he just heard it he goes I gotta, I gotta put this out and it was it was great, but you know we were kind of just uh, limited to just doing cover
4: songs, so that's how uh, Replicants came up. When you mentioned Paul, that was Paul DeMore, the original bassist of Tool. And you also yeah, one yeah. of the songs that you did with Replicants actually had Maynard on vocals.
3: Mm-hmm, yeah, uh, he did silly love songs. Paul McCartney. Right. <laughs> oh. it, it's classic because if you listen to the very beginning of that song. You you hear him going, he, he says something remark like, do, do you have it yet or something like that? And you hear this water in the background. And it's actually him pissing. Well, you know, well. Yeah, because he's singing in the toilet. So <laughs> he pisses, and you go, hey, do you got that? And we put that on the record You know, you got to have humor going That is that's great <laughs> I love the version of Cinnamon Girl That you guys did on that And
2: one of the things that I like about this And I know that you agree Is that the individuality of the musician Shines through because of the way You interpreted these songs Yeah,
3: and you know You don't realize that When you're playing cover songs Because you're just Trying to make a Put your own vibe to it But And it's kind of easy to discount doing a cover record, but I heard it years later. I kind of forgot I did it for many years, and when I heard it, I was like, wow, this is really cool because it, it, it seemed like jazz music where they're playing standards, so you don't think about uh, composition. You know, you're not judging them. All oh, that song sucks. They're just great songs anyways. Right. And, and then you can see what these people did to the song, and I uh, and was... You know, we did that amazingly fast, you know, really fast. And uh, it, was, it was so much fun to do.
2: You know what, Chris, that brings me to uh, talk about another project you did with both Paul and Greg, and that was the Lusk project. And one of the coolest things is that... You did that in the iconic Alley Studios in North Hollywood where so many great classic rock records were, were done. And I was wondering, working
3: in that studio, how did that shape what you guys did for the record? It, it completely shaped everything. Because it, it was this I don't know if you've been there.
2: No, I'd, I'd love to go
3: the next time I'm out there. It's so amazing. And, you know, unfortunately, most Los Angeles studios are gone now because the record industry has... Uh, been disassembled by uh, Mr. iPod. But uh, that one, I, I'm i sure it's still there, but that's where, you know, Neil Young, Crosby, Sills, Nash, Poco, Little Feet, every band in the world, the, the Chili Peppers are always there still. Um, you know, the, the 70s bands and, and Fleetwood Mac. And when we first got in there, our intention was trying to be a space rock band. You know, we were just gonna be, you know, kind of like Noy or Khan or some kind of, you know, space rock. And by just being in there and uh, the wooden walls and and all the posters and nostalgia, and we suddenly just kind of got into the vibe and was listening to some of those records. And we noticed that, uh, you know, back then melody was the form of the music and a lot of rock music now is based around the rhythm you know just real heavy rhythm and it it comps along with it and then we thought okay well let's let's work as melody as a form and the drummer's more like a timekeeper ringo-esque vibe and so that forced us to work differently and um, also at that same time they put out the uh, beatles anthology records and and a lot of those are John Lennon sitting at a Mellotron just improvising the song, and that spirit is incredible. Have you you heard those? I don't know that I have, no. Some of them? Yeah, he he, he does like I Am the Walrus, and, and he's just sitting at the Mellotron, and you know, he's messing up notes, but it's just that spirit, that spontaneity of that moment, and you know, it's warts and all. And that's kind of where we aspire to do, is just first takes. Uh, keep that kind of loose vibe, and uh, I think that's why today it, it's so fun to listen to for me.
4: Well, cool. that album was actually nominated for a Grammy. Is that true?
3: Yeah, it did. It was very surprising. You know, you, w- when you put music out, it's like letting your kid off to the war. You don't know which way it's going to head. <laughs> right. You're fearful, but uh, sometimes it takes really surprising twists and turns and. And it was nominated, and we were like, yes, yeah, that was cool. That was very cool. And what's
2: interesting is that,
3: Chris, you're known,
2: you know, for being an expert with both current technology, you've done a lot of sound design for some of the, you know, great companies like Korg and DigiDesign and and Moog, but then on that record, there were no computers. It was all standard instrumentation. Uh, Did you guys make a conscious decision to record it that way and to only use standard instruments? Uh, no, most of the decisions were
3: based on that we were broke ass. <laughs> 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 so we didn't have any... No, but, but still, it's, it's always best to use uh, tape inherently. And, um, and of course, now is, is like a hybrid of systems. You use digital and analog a lot. But back then, it was, we had very minimal equipment. So that was taken out of the picture. It wasn't about the gear at all, it was just kind of capturing these loose, you know, spontaneous moments. And like I said, you know, there was no tuning, there's things that are out of tune at a time, but that's that's what I love about it is that vibe. I saw on your
2: site, Chris, you have a
3: section called Workshop,
2: and I was wondering, is that gear all yours? And, uh, you know, I especially
3: like the Trident console that was pictured. Yeah, I, about all the gear I have, I, it's heavily modified. And I, you know, I've done it for years and years. I'll do a, lo- a lot of electronic modifications. And I have friends who do the same, and, and we go back and forth. We'll take uh, tape recorders from the 1950s and then just make them into the most insane mic breeze you you've ever had. And you're the only one in the world that has it. Mm, wow! And you can change components like transformers and capacitors, and it just has an individuality, and that's what uh, that's what I use in all our recordings.
4: Cool. Can you talk about how you got involved with Guns N' Roses and what it was like meeting Axel for the first time?
3: Uh, yeah, that was. Uh, I was introduced to them through uh, Billy Howardell, um, who was a. He worked for Tool for a while.
4: And did a perfect and, circle too, right?
3: Yeah, he did that and really just, he's a, a fun guy and he was way into computer stuff before many people were. He was doing recordings with it and he plays a bunch of instruments and and he was like myself, he goes, you know, you work for Tool, how did you get out of this? I'm like, well, you just quit being a tech and you just start doing music. <laughs> and, right. And, you know, because it's easy to just do that for a living. And, but it's you know it takes a bit of balls to try to uh, survive uh, just being a musician, and he was just too talented, and that's what he eventually did. But he he uh, turned Axel on to the Lusk record, and Axel was way into you know the the guitar sounds and orchestration that we did, and uh, he invited me down to hang out. And you know the first night I met Axel, yeah, I didn't know anything about the band. Too much besides their big hits they had on the radio right and when i met him he was just, just like, You're a really cool guy he was so warm and we just had a blast hanging out and he was playing just tons of tapes and stuff and he eventually invited me up to his house like a guest house and we, you know it was made into the studio and we wrote uh, music there for, like, three years, just me and him. It was a great neutral zone without people, you know, bugging you. And uh, a lot of great stuff came out of there. And he's, he's just enormously talented, he's play, and he was playing a lot of lead guitar back then. Really? Wow. And, yeah, yeah you, most people don't know that, but I, I want to give him props up for it because he was just astounding, really. Really well. Wow. Yeah, he he approached guitar like he does his vocals, where you know you can't think of anyone in the world doing what he was doing. <laughs> and uh, I was shocked. He was doing you know like blue oyster cult double lead type things. I was like whoa, you know. Uh, he's an amazing fella
2: well when you approach uh, writing a song back in those sessions what comes first would a melody come first or maybe a groove or how did that work when you first started writing with axel
3: uh, you you just never know uh, you, if you start trying to predict it or making a formula of it and it echoes out the window and uh, the, the the funniest instance of us doing stuff. I was up at his house for about a week or two, and I was setting up, you know, because I'd worked with a couple of film scores before, and they set up, back then, these rack-mounted samplers like Kurzweil and Emu. And you had your kind of fake orchestra with synthesizers. You know, one would be the strings, one with brass, and so on and so forth. And I was setting that up for him and he came out. I'm just going. Okay. Uh, now, now this module here, we're going to use this for brass instruments. And here you have horns. And he was, you know, he was playing while I was switching the sounds. And uh, and I switched the sound to a French horn sound. And he was playing this chord progression. And I I went to another sound. He goes, oh, go back to that one. And uh, we went back, and it was a French horn sound. And he kept playing this progression and it sounded really cool and I turned around and turned on the tape machine and that ended up being, and you can hear it today, a very intro of the song called Madagascar. Wow. And, and that's just how that evolved and he just had this chord progression and all of a sudden it married with the French horn and that was, it was a super moody song and uh, and that was the start of that song and it actually we re- re- recorded it really quickly up there in his house and uh, and he just sang unbelievably on that great song
2: and it's really great that you couldn't go in there and predict okay axel's going to come out with a pretty neat chord progression and we're going to use a french horn sound that is something that could only happen by complete chance when you were going through the sounds like that so it's just great that you were able
3: to capture that moment because look what it turned into such a great song yeah, and, and that exact moment is still on the record today. That's what surprises me. Yeah, you because know, it takes me right to that, right back that, to that very day. instant.
4: When you guys play that live, you know, Dizzy actually plays that in the live setting, mm-hmm. right? That live? Yeah, he
3: plays the French horn parts, and I'll play the strings over the top of it. And, uh,. And it comes off great. It's, it's pretty powerful. Yeah, it's, the recording, you just got to, you know, when you hear these recordings, you, it's, it's quite astounding. I mean, sound-wise, they're a hybrid of a lot of different processes that have taken years to do. But while doing it at this pace, you will have not heard anything like this before because... You know, who's taking that long to do it, you know? Yeah. And to work on it that thorough. So uh, it's, it's quite a sonic feast for people to enjoy.
4: And kind of on that note, is this an album, I'm talking about Chinese democracy, of course, that you think needs to be enjoyed, like, in its entirety? You need to listen to all the songs kind of flowing together? Or is it a song where you can kind of just pick out one song here and there and listen to it? Is it important to listen to it as a entire concept? Uh, I... It's
3: hard for me to judge that because I'm too far inside of it to be objective like that. Right. You know, to hear it as a whole, I wouldn't think you have to. I think you could drop the needle anywhere on the record and find something, you know, really interesting. You know, it'll take a while for people to absorb it because it's very rich. Um, it, there's a lot of information to deal with. It's, it's not a record that's monochrome. It sounds like the same, uh, you know, the band just, just playing a set. It's, you know, it, it fuses a lot of different elements together. Uh, and that's what Axel's, you know, that's his expertise. He has this kind of collage-like uh, ability to, to
4: bring things together that you wouldn't have thought. Cool. you mentioned drop the needle and I actually bought the vinyl or pre-ordered the vinyl on Best so you will be able to get this on vinyl guys for all you guys who like actual records like me so pretty exciting yeah. stuff. It's so, important to
3: yeah buy, buy vinyl get the vinyl version because you're getting high resolution. Uh, mp3s are uh, quite you know if you get an mp3 it's 90% of the data is lost. Uh, to people who don't understand that compression scheme (laughs) right so uh, if you can get the vinyl it's, it's astounding
2: now so Chris, I'm going to kind of pre-answer
3: this question and
2: I will say the answer I'm sure is yes but how hard was it and was it hard to decide out of all the material that you worked on for the album was it hard to decide which songs were going to be on the final album and is there anything that you wish that was on it that isn't on it that you might be saving for the future?
3: Yeah, there's, there's a whole wealth of material I mean, ten years just hundreds and hundreds of songs ideas and and stuff and it it was really hard to conceptualize down to what would work together and that was that was Axel's thing he he made that part happen and uh, and you know to this day we're still working on what's coming up next and you know pushing forward with things you know the Chinese saying okay cool it's done let's let's move on to the next thing and it's just moving upwards and his spirit is to just always um, you know to express himself he hasn't had to, to go back to 1987 or whatever yet you know for nostalgia's sake but
4: he very well could and how does it feel after all these years of you know Press talking about the record that we finally have a real release date and really only just a few weeks away at this point. How did it feel to hear that the release date was finally final? Uh, weird and shocking.
3: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it still is weird. I just, uh, what? what is it? Yeah, I, I, I can't describe it, really. But I'm happy because now people are, are getting an idea, you know, because they would just continually bash us in the press as they love to do because, you know, Guns is just such a popular band. But the, the end result is we knew what we had, very confident about it, and um, it's something unique. I think people, once, once they can sink their teeth into it and, and get an understanding of it, it, it will have been worth it. Great, and Chris, I know
2: that you co-wrote one of the tracks that
3: we've we've
2: all heard so
3: far, it's the World,"
2: and it's great that that song became part of the Body of Lies movie.
3: Yeah, yeah, especially Ridley Scott. I mean, that guy's a mix, you know, what a hero.
4: Brings it back to Blade Runner. Yeah,
3: and he he went through a bunch of our songs and he picked that one. So cool. Wow. And cool. Uh, and that was great. And, uh, but yet, uh, still, it's. Like I said, you haven't heard it in its its best form yet, in right. high fidelity, and uh, it's going to be exciting. That's uh, that's a fun one. That one actually uh, is going to interpret you,
4: you know really good for like live shows and stuff as well cool yeah well Chinese Democracy November 23rd exclusively at Best Buy and like Chris said guys we should all pick up the vinyl for the ultimate listening experience for that Chris where does the nickname Mother Goose come from
3: Uh, you know I haven't it's funny I haven't heard that in quite a while because uh when Buckethead came into the band of course everyone associated with Buckethead has a nickname (laughs) right You know, there's brain, there's, you know, throat rake, and there's great people like that. So um, basically, the Mother Goose came from uh, like a Philip Dick book called Vallis. If, if any of you read that mm. and it was just kind of you know just one of those funny nicknames but it kind of came and went real quick I only hear it from people you know associated back then when Bucket was playing with us and it's kind of funny to hear now so to go, right. oh yeah yeah, yeah.
4: To bring it back to sex tapes again, when you go to buy this CD or MP3s on iTunes, you're looking. You're going to look for sex tapes. That's the name of the CD and the project or band, if you will. And where is the best place for somebody to order this CD online? Sex tapes. We're talking about now. As you're saying, uh, if you're going online,
3: do do put in sex tapes and then Chris Pittman, because if you hit sex tapes, you're going to get a million sex tapes, literally. <laughs> so you want to look for mine, and uh, hopefully there's none out that's a little too
4: compromised.com <laughs> <So laughs> will it be available? <laughs> yeah. For that? Yeah. Uh, that's a, yeah, some uh, rabbit ex-girlfriend or something. <laughs>
3: Chris,
2: now is the TM after the one-word group name, sex tapes, is that stand for trademark, or does that stand for something yeah. else?
3: No, we actually trademarked it. Very cool. You know, as one name because we we kind of had to 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 make it. You know, to do legal merchandising and stuff. So we did trademark the name, and uh, that's how that came around. Very cool.
2: And Chris, before we let you go, I wanted to touch on your artwork. And for all you talking metal listeners who may not have known this, please go to Chris's website, chrispitman.com, and check it out. I mean, there are some amazing works that are in kind of media that would all think about, paintings, but then there's some really neat stuff with photography, and what I was really interested in were these site-specific installations and photographs of, for example, the dirt after the tread of a bulldozer would plow through it, and basically just tell me a little bit about that
3: stuff, it's really amazing. Uh, The site-specific stuff was done in the early 90s, you know, that's kind of when I got out of art school. You know, you, you kind of graduate through the painting and the drawing, and you find out that that uh, is kind of kind of a dead art. So, you know, in art school, you go, okay, well, what's the next step? Well, you go to conceptual art, and then site-specific art was really cool. And, and you know, uh, Robert Smithson and a, a lot of others have pioneered that art, where the the journey is you're going into you're making the environment an art piece and you're taking it out of context and i started doing these multimedia uh... projects where i do an installation and you would take a space and i would add dirt you'd add tractor marks you'd add the oils smell of oil you know it was all is multi sensory wow. smells and 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 i had multiple screens with bulldozers so you walked into a room and you were at a construction site but yet you were in a, a pseudo gallery setting, and it was that displacement made you think differently. Wow! And the fact that you smelled all this stuff too, it, it just kind of took you. And but they're really involved to do. And and uh, I haven't had time to do any of that stuff really site specific since uh, the nineties. Except I've been working on a piece for probably nearly like eight years. Uh, to finish, and that, that involves a lot of farms and um, uh, grain silos and stuff, and I can't wait to do that one. Wow but That's going to take A huge venue To do it <laughs>
2: Now all of the Paintings That I see on your site Do those still exist And do you have them
3: On display somewhere Where can people See that in person Most of those uh, Everything I did With art If a friend Liked it If someone came Into my house I gave it to them Wow uh, Most of it Is given away I, and I, It took me About a year To track a lot Of it down And document it To put on the website But it's Art has always been about, you know, it's free, it's a given. It's not something to make money at. It's, it's anti-commercial. And if someone really likes it, it's like, here you go. You know, uh, well, that, was cool. the biggest, uh, that was the biggest buzz for me, is to actually release a piece uh, to someone else. My thing is, is I was very inspired by Marcel Duchamp. And one of his things was to do reproductions of a reproduction. And that was the art. Wow! Where you can create prints, and and of course, there's no such thing as an exact duplication. It, it creates something new. So with all the documentation I did, I can redo those prints, and it's still an original. So that's how I will carry that art on. I'll you know at, at some point offer you know prints of those for sale at various sizes. And uh, uh, since I came out with a website, there's people that. Have money to hire you to do oil paintings and stuff and uh I wish I had time it'd be so great to get back to this visual art it's really great stuff and all of you uh listeners make sure you check it out and make sure you put the sound up
1: because the first time i looked at everything
2: i didn't have the speakers on on my computer and i was really surprised when i took a second look to hear there's almost like a soundtrack behind it in each piece you've composed a little bit of a different style of sound underneath it which is also you know Know, kind of bringing back more than one sense you're seeing and hearing. And I'll tell you, the stuff about adding smells to uh, work is, is even
3: more amazing because, you know, all your senses are being hit at once. Yeah, it's not simply two dimensional art, then, you know, because the human brain is just so elastic. And it, it's taking on a lot of different elements just besides visual. When you're in an art gallery, the things that you hear, things that you smell, and it, it's, it's trying to immerse yourself into that experience. And, uh, you know, luckily art has evolved where we can recognize that, where people like Van Gogh and Picasso were just concerned of what was on the canvas itself. And uh, now it, it's neat because you have you can surround yourself with music, and it, it just manipulates the viewer into uh, you know almost some kind of conscious shock. You know, maybe something can happen with one person that spurs on something very cool
4: excellent Chris thank you so much for taking time out this afternoon to join us on Talking Metal we encourage again all the listeners to pick up Sex Tapes on November 11th and Chinese Democracy on November 23rd and if we could get an ID from you before you go saying your name and that you're listening to Talking Metal that would be great
3: Hi, this is Chris Pittman with Sex Tapes and Guns N' Roses, and you're listening to Talking Metal. These guys rock. Bye-bye. Cool. Chris, thanks very much, man. We really appreciate it. You took the
2: time out to uh, do the interview with us, and we can't wait to actually meet you in person the next time you get,
3: you're around the New York area or we're out there in L.A. Yes, we got to hang, man. We got to hang, for sure. Definitely. I, wa- I want to come up and visit Ron and, and Frank as those guys are you know, some of my greatest bros, really.
4: Cool. <laughs> yeah, Frank lives literally down the street from me here, so uh, please let us know when you're coming out, definitely. Uh, serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... Down the street is maybe a slight exaggeration, but we're in the same town here in New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, we'll we'll have to hang, and definitely
3: when uh, when Guns comes back to town, we'll have to go large. Oh, you awesome. Guys,
4: awesome. You guys got to drink beer at least. Oh yeah, I believe you can it. you drinking more than that. <laughs> you believe yeah, okay. It. I rolled out of that place at about 8 a.m. one night after one he your
2: shows. So, Oh, shit. Yeah. You were legless. Legless. <laughs>
1: yeah. That place is great. Uh, there's still one girl that I lost her phone number, and I'm, I'm literally
2: considering an all-out search for this person that I met that night. But, Lucky you. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, we'll definitely hang Chris, and uh, thanks uh, again,
3: and this stuff is killer, and uh, we can't I appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to sex tapes and give it an honest listen. I, that's you know that, that says a lot right there. Thanks. I like how you picked out. I've got a girl. She's a beautiful Yeah, I love that. <laughs> yeah, what, you what? That uh, a lot of girls like that lyric too. And it's like, really? I thought you'd be pissed off. I like, oh, that's great.
4: <laughs> I love it. It's, it's very very cool. But all right, oh, Chris. Cool. Come on, guys. Say oh, have a good afternoon. We'll talk to you soon. Super.